This is episode number 30 of the Individual One podcast. For the record, individual number one is President Donald J. Trump. And I am your host. We are broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, and distributed internationally by the Global Story Network. This is the bi-weekly program, which takes an honest and hard look at the presidency of Donald J. Trump from a conservative perspective, because, well, let's face it, unfortunately, no one else is willing or able to tell the real truth about him. The liberal mainstream media, well, they just can't be objective, and the conservative now state-run media has been completely compromised. We, however, at the Individual One Podcast have most definitely not been co-opted. Welcome to the program. Please subscribe, rate, review, and share it via social media. Follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at Individual One Pod. That's Individual the number one pod. This is episode number 30. I hope you checked out episode number 29. Got a lot of great reactions about episode number 29 because it features one of the best interviews I've ever done, or at least most interesting interviews I've ever done. And I've done a lot of interviews over my career. But we uh, spoke with the cable news veteran David Schuster about the nature of the news business and how it relates to Donald Trump, how it facilitated his nomination, his election, And really uh, how he has been able to maintain himself despite numerous scandals and will continue to be able to do so largely because of the changing and broken nature of the news media. It was a very honest interview and there's some personal reasons why I felt like it was one of the most interesting interviews and most enjoyable that I've ever done. So make sure you check out if you've not done so already episode number 29 of the Individual One podcast. As is usually the case, lots to get to in this episode number 30. We were originally anticipating that today would be the day that Robert Mueller would testify to Congress, which obviously would be a big day, uh, not just for this podcast, but for uh, news in general. That has not happened, and we don't know when it will actually occur. And I, uh, I'm a big believer that timing is everything in life. And we are dangerously, perilously close to the point where, while it will always be interesting to hear what Robert Mueller has to say, that it may be irrelevant, at least from a political or legal perspective, because it's just too late. It's just simply too late. Our attention spans are too short. And I believe that the Trump forces that are now controlling the Department of Justice, which apparently has had some role in this delay of Mueller's uh, testimony, at least according to Jerry Nadler, who is the head of the Judiciary Committee in the House of Representatives, who would be hosting Robert Mueller, at least in his first uh, testimony to Congress, has said that there are negotiations going on with the Department of Justice. I believe the Department of Justice now acting on behalf of their boss, Donald Trump, knows damn right well that delay is good here. The delay is an outstanding end, regardless of what Mueller has to say, because of those very short attention spans of which I speak, not just for the public at large, but for the media as well. Correct. And Trump knows this better than anybody. If, if Trump has a genius... It is understanding the nature of the media because he's so much like them. And one of the ways he's so much like them is in his incredibly short attention span. And the public, of course, this is a symbiotic relationship. The short attention span of the of the media is in relationship to the short attention span of the public. And then uh, the shorter the attention span of the public gets, the shorter the attention span of the media gets because the tail is wagging the dog here. 
We The business model is broken. The media must placate the audience. And if the audience has an incredibly short attention span, the media must adjust to that. And so e- even though in a rational world, the world would be waiting with bated breath for what Robert Mueller has to say, especially in light of how Bill Maher, mis- Bill Maher, Bill, Bill Barr, <laughs> Bill Maher actually has been fairly truthful on this whole thing, the HBO host. Bill Barr has not been. That's pretty pathetic when, when <laughs> Bill Maher is more truthful than Bill Barr. But when Bill Barr uh, mischaracterized what was in the Mueller report. We should all be waiting with bated breath on Robert Mueller. And some of us are, but not the people who actually matter and not the majority. So uh, I am b- becoming convinced that uh, the Democrats have been had here. They have been schnookered. They have uh, done this whole thing wrong. They have been naive. They have been cowardly. And Trump is going to win, as I've been predicting for quite a long time. We're just arguing over what the final score is going to be with regard to the Mueller investigation. So while personally, I, I am very eager to hear what Mueller has to say. It doesn't matter when it will be, but I'm very unusual. <laughs> I have a very long attention span, especially for things in which I am interested, and I would like to get to the bottom of this. Of course, we hardly ever get to the bottom of anything in our society today. We're better than that. No, well, unfortunately, we're not anymore. And I doubt we're ever going to get to the bottom of this, or if we do, it will be too late. Now, there are other developments uh, that are certainly related to the Mueller investigation, one of which is the fact that this is just unbelievable. I mean, it, this is as it's just flat out ridiculous as it gets regarding Donald Trump Jr. Donald Trump Jr. We learned just after uh, the the head uh, of uh, the Republican Senate, Mitch McConnell, and the head of the Judiciary Committee in the in the Republican Senate, Lindsey Graham, had effectively declared all this to be over. Let's move on quickly before anyone actually reads the Mueller report, because if you read the Mueller report, it's really, really bad. Correct. Uh, we found out that Richard Burr, the head of the, the Republican, head of the Senate Intelligence Committee, had subpoenaed Donald Trump Jr. to testify to his committee. Oops. Oops, that's that's a problem because this isn't a Democrat issuing a subpoena for Donald Trump. This junior, this is a Republican. And we talked in the last episode about how disgraceful it was that Republicans didn't attack Donald Trump Jr. for not voluntarily coming in to testify to a Republican uh, Senate committee. And, and forcing them to issue a subpoena. No, 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 no. They sided against their own colleague, Richard Burr, specifically Lindsey Graham, specifically Rand Paul, and others. It was a complete disgrace, a total and complete disgrace. We're better than that. And the idea that this would happen for anybody, but especially for the son of the president, the son of the president who facilitated a meeting with Russian operatives during the campaign in the Trump Tower and then blatantly lied about it on numerous occasions. Correct. He's unwilling to testify. First of all, what's he afraid of? What are you afraid of, Donald Trump Jr.? Why why don't you want to testify? I mean, he was acting as if he was being brought in to be waterboarded. No, this is just simply answering questions under oath, which, if you're telling the truth, should not be a problem. Well, Lindsey Graham goes out and says, and this is stupefying, stupefying. The head of the Judiciary Committee, a Republican, Lindsey Graham, who I used to have a lot of admiration for, but I explained 
in recent episodes why I no longer do, and this has been a long time coming. He's the biggest hypocrite there is on this issue of, of uh, investigations and Trump's impeachment, and he was the impeachment manager, the head impeachment manager, basically, lead spokesperson during the Bill Clinton impeachment uh, inquiry back in the late 90s, and it's completely flipped on this. John McCain is rolling over in his grave as a former friend of Lindsey Graham. I am fascinated to know what somebody has something on Lindsey Graham. I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but there has to be something on Lindsey Graham. There has to be some leverage on him. Something is compromising Lindsey Graham because it just doesn't make sense. I get that he's up for re-election, but it's South Carolina. There's something deeper going on here with Lindsey Graham. Correct. I just don't know what it is. There's been some theories. I don't necessarily buy into those, but uh, regarding you know his sexuality, I don't know if that's part of it or not. But the reality is something's up with Lindsey Graham. And for him to say publicly, you know, Don Jr., I would just ignore that subpoena. It's, it's unbelievable. It is unbelievable. It's just flat out ridiculous. I, I mean, if, if this was happening in reverse with a Democratic president and the, 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 let's say, Chelsea Clinton, let's say Hillary was president and Chelsea Clinton <laughs> was subpoenaed by a Democratic senator, and another Democratic senator, the head of the Judiciary Committee, said, ah, don't even bother. Don't bother coming in. If I were you, I would just, I would just ignore the subpoena. <laughs> the heads of every right-wing commentator in the world would explode. Fox News Channel would be on 24-7 Fox News alert until further notice. And yet uh, there's just crickets basically on the right oh yeah you know that those mean nasty democrats that wait you're saying this wasn't a democrat you're saying this was richard burr a north carolina republican who issued this subpoena so and this is where having the state-run media on your side and having people like lindsey graham were clearly compromised in some way blocking for you matter because it creates leverage on your side by just simply putting out the trial balloon that Don Jr. might ignore a Senate subpoena, it allows him leverage in the negotiations over how that testimony will eventually occur. And that's exactly what happened here. So Don Jr. is going to testify. Except he's only going to testify under completely insane and absurd uh, conditions. Correct. He's going to do it in private which means it doesn't matter, all right? In this world, that means it does not matter. And boy, the Trump people understand this. The Trump people understand, and Donald Trump himself understands better than anything else, if it's not on video, or at least audio, but ideally video, it didn't happen. That's why no matter what the New York Times or the Washington Post reports, about anything, whether it's he's not really rich or he lost over a billion dollars in 10 years in the late 80s, or early 90s, even if it's on paper, because let's face it, most Trump supporters don't read, even if they can read. That's just the, re the reality of it. I love the poorly educated. It, if it's not on video, it didn't happen. And so they know this. So he negotiates to do his testimony in private. He limits the time period to two to four hours. Okay, fine. You know, but that I guess that's enough time. In theory, of course, you got to remember half of the time is going to be spent by Republicans filibustering on his behalf because he's the son of their God King. 
I mean, so that's that's what's going to happen. But then, more importantly, the topics are restricted. Now, I don't know what that means, but when you get to determine what topics you're going to be asked about, <laughs> that's absurd. Come on, people. It's just flat out ridiculous. <laughs> you, 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 as the witness, don't get to decide what, what you're going to be asked about. You know, and, and frankly, in a rational world, especially when you're the son of the president, we, we should be the, the 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 burden of proof should be on the other side here. You should be held to a higher standard, not a lower standard. And then another one of the conditions is he never has to testify again. So in other words, he can he can say something that uh, that they're not prepared for, that they don't have enough uh, information to contradict, or they don't have enough time. Let's say let's say a Democrat gets close to nailing him to the wall and then time runs out in this closed door session and then they learn through later research wait a minute there's a problem here with what don jr said they're not allowed to bring him back again so that gives him enormous flexibility to lie his ass off or at least manipulate uh, what he's saying because he knows he's already been he's already got the agreement that they're not going to bring him back so the whole thing is a fraud it's a farce, and the most important. There's two important parts of it. There's the nepotism angle and doing everything possible to protect Donald Trump, and then there's the why. Why is this necessary? I thought the Mueller report exonerated Donald Trump. <laughs> I thought there was no collusion. I th- wait a minute. Wh- wh- why? Why is any of this necessary? It's necessary because they're still hiding crap. First of all, what's already in the Mueller report is devastating. There's a lot in the Mueller report we that we don't know about because it was redacted. There are other investigations we don't know about. And frankly, as I've always said, the heart of this matter, which directly relates to Donald Trump Jr., the heart of this matter was the Trump Tower Moscow project. And it is clear based upon what we currently know, that Donald Trump Jr. lied his ass off, not just about the the Trump Tower in New York meeting with Russian operatives. He lied his ass off about his knowledge and the the reality of what was happening with the Trump Tower Moscow project. He has claimed that it was ended far before even Michael Cohen said that it ended. Michael Cohen lied to Congress that it ended in January of 2016, which was incredibly convenient because that was just before the Republican primaries began in 2016. That was a lie. That was clearly a lie that was contrived, I believe, by Donald Trump. Although Mueller says that wasn't proven. Well, use your damn brains. Michael Cohen isn't going to suddenly come up with January as the source of the lie unless he knows that's what he's supposed to say and that other people are going to say the same thing. Well, Donald Trump Jr. claimed it was even well before that and that he was barely involved, barely even knew about it. That's bullcrap. Anybody with a brain, a functioning brain, knows that's bullcrap. Now, I don't know whether or not that's been taken off the table with regard to this testimony, But those are part of the reasons why Donald Trump Jr. is afraid to testify, certainly in public. 
And they, the Trump team and Rudy Giuliani, either through insanity or genius, has done an amazing job. An amazing, the most under-talked about part of this whole Mueller investigation is the amazing job that from a PR perspective, the Trump forces have been able to get the Trump Tower Moscow story out there so that the media thinks it's already been reported, and yet most of the public having no clue it even existed. I mean, through all the other voluminous amounts of information that would be devastating to any other president, the heart of this matter and the number one thing the public needs to know is that during the entire, although we're not 100% sure when it ended, but based upon Rudy Giuliani's own statements, he said it, it was right through to the end, right up until Donald Trump's election, that the pres current president of the United States was negotiating a massive land deal in Moscow with the Russian government during the entire campaign and lied about it blatantly numerous times. Correct. Folks, that's the scandal. That's the compromising moment. That's the motivation for most of what happened here because Trump did not think he was going to win. And he had this lifelong dream of a Trump Tower in Moscow, a massive project, and that he was going to be able to pull this off by leveraging the Republican presidential nomination. That's the heart of this whole deal. Everything else, in my opinion, flows from that. And yet, I don't know what the percentage is. I would love to have someone poll this, this question but I am exceedingly confident that far more than half of the public and most Republicans have no idea of the essence of what I just told you. And it's at the heart of the whole damn thing. So that's a sham. That's a scam. The whole Donald Trump Jr. testimony to the Senate Intelligence Committee. And then we've got Bill Barr, who I have now more disdain for than I have for Donald Trump. Donald Trump is largely a buffoon who's just trying to make money and be, and be famous. That's, in my opinion, most of Donald Trump's motivation. Bill Barr knows better. Bill Barr is bastardizing the office of the attorney general to protect his boss as if we're in the frickin' mob, that we've got a mob family running the United States of, the, of America. And it is disgusting. And it's not just the way he misrepresented the Mueller report, that he, he acted like Donald Trump's personal PR hack throughout that entire process. He, he goes in front of Congress and he claims that the Obama administration was, quote unquote, spying on the Trump campaign, which is just total bullshit. You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? And now he is actually uh, essentially hired U.S. Attorney John Durham. Durham to investigate the beginnings of the Russian investigation. Now, uh, this is completely bullcrap. This is nothing but a, a hand job on the part of Bill Barr for Trump's cult. He's giving Trump's cult and the, and the right wing state run compromised media a hand job by subst substantiating all these bullcrap conspiracy theories that don't even make any damn sense with a now official DOJ investigation into the start of the Russian investigation. Now, if it's fairly done, 
yeah, it costs some resources and it'll put some innocent people on the defensive and that's wrong, but I don't care because, you know, if I trusted it, eventually the truth would come out and there would be a moment when all these people who have been claiming these BS conspiracy theories would have to eat crap. But we don't live in that world anymore because that won't be what happens. Even if Durham is actually on the up and up, which I don't know if he is or not, I wish I could trust that he was, but even if he does a fair investigation, there's only two options. It'll, it'll be totally buried and forgotten, or there'll be some red herrings that the right-wing media will be able to save face with in order to, to claim that they were right all along. There just wasn't enough to charge anybody. I say this time and time again, but it bears repeating. If any of this was true, if there was really... A a deep state conspiracy to get Donald Trump, which doesn't make any damn sense at the time of this anyway, because no one thought he was going to win. But if this was some sort of great insurance policy to make sure that Donald Trump, who no one thought was going to win, would would somehow be uh, detonated at the right time. Can someone please explain to me? How the very same FBI who's involved in this, 10 days before the election, in the form of James Comey, goes out and reopens very publicly the email investigation unnecessarily into Hillary Clinton in a way that takes her from a prohibitive favorite to win the presidency to all of a sudden it's neck and neck. How does that happen? And when that happens, let's pretend that James Comey goes rogue on this conspiracy. On this vast conspiracy, James Comey goes rogue on it. Or maybe James Comey's not in on it. Maybe the head of the FBI somehow never picks up on this vast conspiracy to take out Donald Trump and have this insurance policy against him in case somehow he wins. Why at that moment, 10 days before when Comey goes rogue on the conspiracy and all of a sudden Trump looks like he might win. Why is the conspiracy not activated? Why is there not one story, nothing in that last 10 days where some of the information gleaned from this spying on the Trump campaign is ever made public? Why is that? Could you use your damn brains because it didn't exist. That's not what happened. Had there been a conspiracy, guess what? Guess when you activate the conspiracy? Before the election. Before the election. Not in January when you suddenly reveal that there's this thing called the Steele dossier. And it's not even revealed by some sort of de facto government agency. It's on freaking BuzzFeed. In January of 2017, he's already elected at that point. The Electoral College has already voted. This is the worst insurance policy in the history of insurance policies because it didn't happen. Can, gosh, can we please use our freaking brains? You must be crazy. When are you going to stop believing in something that isn't true? So now Bill Barr, though, is further substantiating that crazy conspiracy theory by... Uh, by assigning a U.S. attorney to investigate the beginnings of the Russian investigation, which I will once again say, why is this necessary if there's nothing to hide? These are the acts of people who are hiding things. They are still afraid. These are not the people who are confident in their exoneration. They are still extremely 
concerned uh, about many things, including, I believe, Robert Mueller's testimony. Although the, the more we delay it, as I already said, I think the less they have to worry about Robert Mueller's uh, testimony, regardless of what he says. And I'm sure that there are going to be things that he says that in a rational world would be explosive and bombshells, but we don't live in that rational world. There are other news stories I want to get to. Uh, that involved, obviously, Donald Trump. Today, the Washington Post is out with a story that I found quite fascinating, partially because it dovetails with things that I've been saying for a long time, and partially because it involves a, a very big part of my childhood. The story involves Donald Trump's premier golf property in Miami, the Trump Doral Golf Resort. And the report in the Washington Post is that largely because of the harm done to the Trump brand by his presidency, the Trump Doral Golf Resort in Miami is tanking rather dramatically and quickly in a way that indicates that perhaps Trump's entire real estate empire might be imperiled. Now, the way I read the numbers, and I'm not an expert on this, it it doesn't seem quite as dramatic as the Post made it out to be. But there's it's still very significant. And I think that uh, part of what's happening here, there are a lot of things going on with this. But but part of what I want to mention is and I wrote about this back in 2017 for Mediate. A large part of what happened with regard to Doral is that during the campaign, and it's amazing to me that this never even made a blip on the radar that even Marco Rubio, Florida's senator, who was running against Trump, never made an issue of this, that in 2016, Donald Trump's Doral lost their PGA Tour event. The PGA Tour event that has been at Doral for basically half a century. I mentioned my childhood. Some of the greatest moments of my childhood, my family and I would go to that tournament. I actually played in the Pro-Am a couple of years uh, just before the Doral, this used to be called the Doral Eastern Open. It changed numerous sponsorships, but it was always at Doral. It was always a PGA event. It was one of the biggest events of the year on the PGA Tour leading up to the Masters uh, in April. Generally, it was in February or March. And, you know, to me, back in the day when I was growing up, Doral was a paradise. I'm a big golf fan. I mean, it, it, was the, it was the highlight of my childhood to go there for several years back in the heyday of the Doral Resort, well before Trump ever owned it. And then over time, Doral went into disrepair. They still had the tournament, but it was nowhere near the, the, the paradise that it once was. And as Trump is wont to do, Trump picked up a distressed property at a pretty decent price. Now, he paid a lot more in cash than he was used to doing, which I've always have found to be highly suspicious. And he did this not long before it was clear he was going to run for president when he would need a lot of cash as running, you know, as an anti-establishment candidate who was supposedly self-funding. So none of that has ever made any sense. And there's always been rumors regarding Russian influence on these golf courses, specifically Doral and Turnberry. But in 2016, in the midst of the primary campaign, the PGA Tour announces next year, we're not coming back to Doral because Doral no longer has a sponsor. I believe the sponsor at the time was Cadillac. Not 100% sure, but it was one of the premier car dealers. Now, at the time, I thought this was incredibly significant for a couple of reasons. Number one, (laughs) in the irony of all ironies, the PGA Tour decides in the midst of the campaign, we're dumping 
one of our biggest tournaments at Trump's Doral, and we're moving it where? To Mexico. To Mexico. Now, what the hell the Rubio campaign was doing by not jumping all over this, that in their home state, Donald Trump was going to lose one of the premier events, sporting events in the state on a yearly basis that's been there for half a century and losing it to Mexico, all while he's campaigning on the fact that he's going to build a wall that Mexico's going to pay for is beyond me. I, I, I just do not understand why the Rubio campaign never made an issue out of this. But there was an even larger issue, perhaps, related to this, because if you understand what was going on, it revealed that Donald Trump is not, as I've been saying for years, is not rich. And here's the proof of it. If Donald Trump was really worth billions of dollars or even close to billions of dollars, especially in the midst of a presidential campaign, here's what would have happened. Cadillac would have dropped out as a sponsor and Donald Trump would have said, you know what, PJ Tour, don't worry about it. I got this. Here's $10 million. I'll pay the purse. That's about what it would have cost, give or take. Here's the $10 million. I'll pay it out of my own check. We'll call it the Trump Classic, whatever the hell you want to call it. And this is worth it to me, one, to avoid the embarrassment during the campaign of, of losing this tournament to Mexico. But two, it's important to my resort because this is the advertisement on a yearly basis. This is why people kept going back to Doral. You want to play a tournament. You want to play a golf course where a major tournament is played by the PGA Tour players. That's part of the cachet. Plus, there's four days of television coverage. And you're thinking, oh, wow, wouldn't it be a great idea in the midst of winter to go down to Miami and play golf? Well, that's valuable. That's incredibly valuable to the resort. Trump didn't do that. $10 million to him, which should be nothing if he was actually nearly as rich as he claims. But he's not. So he didn't have the $10 million, especially while he was running for president and needed that cash to run his campaign. So he's a fraud. And I wrote about what a fraud he was and, what a, and, and how this PGA Tour situation proved that he's a complete fraud. So he loses the tournament. And now, a couple years later, lo and behold, Doral is tanking. And it's tanking, one, because of the brand. Rich people don't want to support a Donald Trump resort because of the toxicity of his name. And two, because it no longer hosts a PGA Tour event, and it's not on television for four days, and it's out of sight, out of mind, and it no longer has the cachet of, hey, I want to play the tournament, play the golf course where this tournament is played that I saw on television. So it's not rocket science, but it is significant. And, and if you follow the line here, if this, you, know, you tear away the thread, you tear away the thread. I've always felt that if you understand that Donald Trump is not super rich, then everything flows from that. Because when he's not super rich, you understand everything he's doing with far greater clarity. And that gets me to issues of the emoluments clause and how Trump is making money in some elements of his presidency. And he's doing this in a classically manipulative and somewhat brilliant Trump way. You know, he doesn't take a salary. His salary is not that much. It's a, what, a few hundred thousand dollars, right? So he doesn't take a salary, which the cult 
thinks is proof. Oh, wow. He's so rich. He doesn't need to take his salary. He donates it to charity, which, of course, I'm sure is a a tax write-off. And so this proves how rich he is and how much he loves America because he doesn't take his salary. I love the poorly educated. It's a drop in the bucket in comparison to what he's going to get on the back end. We've just learned just this week that his re-election campaign has already spent $1.3 million at Trump-owned properties. By the way, this happens on a continual basis, not just with the re-election campaign. Every time he visits Mar-a-Lago or Bedminster, guess what? Government money is spent at a Trump property. Not to mention all the emoluments clause violations. And I am now convinced, knowing a lot, I believe, about Trump's psychology, that Trump has now rationalized that, well, I'm losing money because of the fake news media uh, ripping me and my presidency. And so because I'm losing money and my brand is being diminished by the fake news media and I'm making all these great sacrifices for the United States of America, I now am owed this money on the back end. So therefore, I can rationalize having my campaign spend money at Trump uh, uh, owned uh, properties, having the Secret Service spend money there, uh, having all sorts of other ways in which I'm going to make this money back that are highly inappropriate, if not completely illegal and a violation of the Constitution. So that's the way he rationalizes this. This is the way his disturbed mind works. That, well, you know what? This is just fair now. It's fair for me to make money in this back-end way uh, because my cult uh, is too dumb to figure this out. They, it, it's a little complicated. It's not clear-cut. And they think I'm not even taking a salary, so you know they, they still believe I'm super rich and that I'm doing this all out of the goodness of my heart. Bullcrap. It's not about out of the goodness of his heart. I think he actually is trying to make money from the presidency. And again, when you understand he's not that rich, you suddenly realize that spending $1.3 million from the re-election campaign on Trump-owned properties matters to him. See, that's that's the key to this scam. When people think he's so super rich that $1.3 million spent from the re-election campaign already on Trump-owned properties is not a big deal, you think, well, that's not his motivation. That's just, you know, he's just making it easy for everybody. No, that is his motivation because he's not that rich, especially when it comes to cash. Him nickeling and diming the government is actually significant to him. And it's wrong, if not illegal. Those things used to matter to conservatives, but they don't anymore. Now, one other golf-related story that I actually intended to get to in the last episode of the podcast but ran out of time on, but since I'm talking about golf, it certainly works in well right now. You know, uh, a former Sports Illustrated writer of some note by the name of Rick Riley has written this book about Trump and golf and what a cheater he is at golf. And this has never been a surprise to me because he's got the same mentality of Bill Clinton, and Bill Clinton was a big cheater, apparently 
Donald Trump might be even a bigger cheater than Bill Clinton, although that's hard to believe because Bill Clinton was about as big a cheater in golf as you could possibly imagine. <clears throat> Just ask Tiger Woods, by the way. I, and I have a whole story, which I've told in the past, of, of confronting Tiger Woods at the opening of his learning center here in Southern California, where Bill Clinton was the speaker that day, where I, I was able to get to the bottom of the fact that Tiger was pissed off that Bill Clinton had been cheating his ass off the, the day prior when they played golf together because uh, he takes mulligans after every bad shot. Well, Trump does a similar thing. Well, a couple of uh, months ago, I think it was, might have been not that long ago, but in that time range, I actually defended Donald Trump because of one of the stories that had come out of Rick Riley's book. And the story was basically this, that at the time we were told that Donald Trump declared himself to be the club champion last year of one of his clubs because he challenged the actual club champion to a nine-hole match, which he couldn't play in the club championship, one, because he was president. I think he might have been in North Korea at the time, but regard, or visiting, or, you know, he was, he was getting schnookered by North Korea at the time in, in, a, in a summit. And so uh, he didn't play in the club championship. And the, and the story, as I understood it, was he challenged the club pro to a nine-hole match. He supposedly beat him in that nine-hole match. And then he, he, his name, his locker at the club, declared him to be the club champion for that year. Now, for any normal human being, that would be outrageous and absurd, and uh, and a disgrace and an indication of a lack of character. But I actually t- somewhat, in a lukewarm fashion, defended Donald Trump because I thought, wait a minute, hold on. If we understand Trump's distorted mentality, this isn't as bad as it sounds. Because what it sounds like to me happened is that Trump was doing this jokingly, that he was actually honoring the club champion with this nine-hole match with the president of the United States. In Trump's mind, this is a way of honoring the club champion. And that the club, in an in a, in a, a effort to continue to kiss up to the boss, just slapped the club championship uh, you know, uh, medallion on his locker and indicated he was the co-club champion, kind of as a joke, kind of a way of the sucking up to the boss. That made sense to me, having won club championships. I've won four different club championships in three different clubs, three different states uh, across my journeys in the United States. So I'm, I have some expertise in this area. By the way, they were real club championships, not fake club championships like Donald Trump uh, tends to win. Correct. But, uh, but, but here's now the second version of the story. So Rick Riley did an interview for his book, and suddenly the story has changed somewhat significantly. And the current version of the story is that this wasn't some sort of a planned match with the club champ where he was honoring the club champ and there was a a specific time that they said, hey, you want to get together on Tuesday afternoon? Let's play nine holes and we'll have our own club championship. That would have been at least defensible. The the current story is this, (laughs) that Trump apparently heard that the club champion was playing golf the day where he was there. He found him... On I I think like the 12th hole where he was playing with his son, a kid, like a 10 year old kid, Trump comes up to the guy and says, hey, let's play the next six holes for the real club championship. The club champion says, "Uh, thanks, uh, Mr. President, but I'm playing with my son. You know, no, you know, let's you know do some other time or no thanks. He's trying to politely get out of it. Trump doesn't take no for an answer. 
Trump, the you know, he's the president of the United States. He owns the club. The guy gets basically coerced into doing this six holes, which is way worse than nine holes. I mean, nine holes is a joke to begin with, but now six holes is a complete and utter farce. And according to Rick Riley's telling of the story, according to the caddies, although Riley doesn't appear to have direct sourcing on this, which makes me suspicious, but this is the story Riley's telling. Apparently, so the, the club champ, the real club champ, Trump, and the kid play in these six holes. And on one of the holes, Trump hits his approach shot to the green clearly in the water. Clearly in the water. The kid hits his ball onto the green. By the time they get to the green, this is according to Riley, Trump's caddy has declared that the kid's ball is Trump's ball and that the kid had actually hit the ball into the water. So the president of the United States steals the golf ball of a kid who hit it onto the green while declaring that the kid had actually hit the ball into the water. A kid. All in an effort to win this bogus six-hole fake club championship so he could declare himself his ego so insecure, so humongous, that he could declare himself the club champion of this course that he owns in Florida. Now, if that story is true, right there, frankly, that's an impeachable offense. <laughs> that, that, is, that is worthy of removal from not just the presidency. That is, that is worthy of removal from the human race, if that story is true. Here's my problem. I don't trust Rick Riley. I don't trust. I've never trusted Rick Riley. Uh, he is an exaggerator. And, and and worse now, he's no longer the same uh, media superstar that he once was when he had the, the back page at Sports Illustrated. So he's trying to make a comeback by ingratiating himself. And, of course, the best way to do that in the media is to say something really negative about Donald Trump. So his sourcing on this is not great at all. And I don't trust Rick Riley. That being said, I wish I could say I don't believe the story because it doesn't sound like Trump, because it actually sounds a lot like Correct. Trump, <laughs> way too much like Trump. And that's what's really that's really what the saddest part of this whole thing is. We're better than that. No, we're not. That's who we have as president. Even if the story's not true, it's plausibly enough true <laughs> that I can actually see it happening and that's sad because that sounds like the guy who I know as president of the United States. And that's pathetic. Again, gun to my head. I don't know if the story is true, uh, but it got a lot of play from Rick Riley and, and an interview that he did on a liberal, uh, I think it was NPR or it was some some liberal uh, outlet. And so I wanted to at least address it today, uh, especially since that other golf story was in the news. Uh, speaking of other news involving Trump, there's a new book coming out by Michael Wolff, a sequel to Fire and Fury called Siege. And my first reaction to this was, oh, great. So Trump's approval ratings are going to go up at least another two or three points because that's what happened the first time around. People forget that Michael Wolff's book, at least when you look at the polling data, and I'm not saying this was the reason why this happened, but it was an interesting coincidence you know, all of that hubbub over the Fire and Fury book clearly helped Trump. 
he hit the nadar of his approval ratings right before that book came out. Now, this also did coincide with the passing of the, the tax cuts, which clearly had a major impact. But I believe that the Michael Wolff book was so over the top, was so insane, the media went so nutso over it, that effectively it inoculated Trump from any further revelations in, a, in the written form, having any impact on him at all. And I think the facts back me up on this. The same thing happened with Bob Woodward's book. Bob Woodward's book, which is far more credible than Michael Wolf, although I don't consider uh, Woodward to be the god that a lot of people in the media do, uh, but uh, Woodward's book had zero impact on Donald Trump, and I predicted that that would be the case in a, in a column for media at the time, and I predicted the same thing with Michael Wolf's book. In fact, that might have been one of the best predictions I've made in the last few years, is that Wolf's book would actually help Trump by inoculating him against any revelation of insanity from within the White House from either anonymous sourcing or even direct sourcing because the Trump cult simply doesn't care. We've all been now totally desensitized, and frankly, a lot of them don't believe it. I love the poorly educated. And frankly, there's good reason for them not to believe it because the media is not to be trusted. They have overplayed their hand with regard to Donald Trump, and now they have no credibility, whether they should or not. I mean, you know, it depends on who it is, but in, to the people who matter, there is no credibility in a book like this. I'm sure the book will do very well. I'm sure it'll make money. That's all Michael Wolf cares about. That's all the publishers care about. It'll give the media something to talk about for another couple of days. That's all they care about, but it'll have zero negative impact on Trump. If anything, it will actually help him because let's face it, Trump fans, the big Trump fans, they don't read books. I love the poorly educated. If they can even read to begin with. Now, speaking of Trump's approval ratings, they are going up. It's amazing. It's amazing. It is absolutely amazing that post Mueller report, after what we've learned from the Mueller report, which is devastating to in any rational world, that and, and we've learned other things outside the Mueller report. We learned that he's a complete financial fraud, that the essence of who his supporters thought he was this financial wizard, super rich guy is also a total fraud. We've learned that thanks to reporting in the New York Times, although we should have known that for a, for a long time before then. But now it's been proven. But those are the you know two of the major revelations in the last few weeks. And it is absolutely clear that Trump's approval ratings have gone up during this time period. It is astonishing. It, it is, it is frankly... It's just flat out ridiculous. But that's where we are. I, I would really honestly love to know, who are these people who were not approving of Donald Trump before the Mueller report and who are now telling pollsters, yeah, I approve of the job he's doing? Who are those people? I, I honestly don't know who they are. I mean, they're, they're not a huge number, but they're, it's based on the polling, there's a significant number, whether it's 3 4 5% of the population... I mean, it's is it the economy? I mean, the economy's been doing the same as been as it's been doing. Frankly, over the last couple of weeks, we've had uh, all sorts of turmoil in the stock market because of these insane tariffs that Trump is obsessed with. By the way, a, a Trump uh, staffer has said it's, and this is unbelievable. In, in a normal presidency, this would be all we would talk. We'd be talking about a Trump staffer has actually been quoted as saying that it's it is impossible or pointless to try to dissuade Donald Trump on tariffs because 
He's so convinced he's right, it's like a theology. That's a quote. A theology. Can we be clear on the tariff situation? First of all, it is as antithetical to conservatism as anything you can imagine, especially in the way he's implementing this. Tariffs are the opposite of conservatism, especially when, as part of the tariffs, you decide to give massive subsidies, government subsidies, to the people that you're harming with your tariffs. And it's been said many times, but it bears repeating. I I see this on Twitter all the time. Effectively, these Chinese tariffs are a situation where we are now using tax money. Let's be clear what tax money is with these deficits. The tax money, which is effectively money we have gotten in a loan from China. So we we are taking a loan from China to pay farmers to not be able to sell their goods to China. That's what we're doing. That is not hyperbole. That is not exaggeration. That is a fact. That's what we're doing. If a Democratic administration was doing that, it would be called what it is. Well, first of all, it would be called insanity. Secondly, it would be called socialism. That's what it is, socialism. But because it's under the Trump banner, Republicans just sit on their hands and say and do nothing. And I wrote a column because I just had it. I've just had it. I, I wrote a column which was shockingly popular, and I'm always concerned whenever any of my columns are popular. But I wrote a column yesterday, which you can find either at my Twitter feed or at the Individual One Pod Twitter feed, or just Google it, uh, about all the reasons why conservatives are nuts to be protecting Donald Trump at all costs. And the tariff issue is, is just one of them. Let me just go through a, a few of the others that I outlined in this column, which I urge you to check out. You know, usually during great economic times, the debt and the deficit decrease. But during Trump's reign, despite having congressional majorities most of the time, those numbers have exploded all in the name of conservatism. Thanks to Trump, conservatives have lost the moral high ground on virtually every possible issue of character in the public debate. Today, now, going forward, other than murder, it is impossible to conceive of what those who supported Trump through all of this could legitimately claim to be a disqualifier to hold high federal office in the future. On what basis are Trump supporters going to be able to legitimately and credibly attack, for instance, a Democratic candidate for any office other than murder? I can't think of one. Trump has diminished the negative impact for having been caught in a lie or being a hypocrite down to literally nothing. A lie used to be the gold standard. George Herbert Walker Bush lost his presidency over one lie. Read my lips. No new taxes. Trump has diminished the negative impact for being caught in a lie to nothing. This used to be one of the best weapons of attacks for conservatives. And now it has been permanently, at least in my lifetime, disarmed. Not that conservatives won't try. They're already, they're already trying uh, on some of these Democratic candidates. But I'm sorry. No. No. You have no credibility on this. You cannot say it's okay with Trump and claim it's a disqualifier for a Democratic presidential candidate. Just a few years after, when President Obama was famously ripped by some conservatives for wearing a tan suit, and this is true, (laughs) Fox News Channel ripped Barack Obama for wearing a tan suit because that was inappropriate for 
the president of the United States. There is literally no longer any reasonable claim by an act of a president to be considered inappropriate. Trump, on a daily basis, just on his Twitter feed, has blown apart all semblance of anything that could be called inappropriate actions by a president. A president sucking up to foreign tyrants, even letting them help their presidential campaign without alerting any of the authorities is now perfectly fine post-Trump, even if they have to destroy public faith in our intelligence agencies in order to get away with it, which is exactly what Trump has done. The likely eventual implosion of Obamacare, this is one that bothers the hell out of me and doesn't get talked about enough, which would have been owned by liberals, will now, thanks to Trump's efforts to alter it without fulfilling his promise to repeal it, be blamed on, quote-unquote, conservatism. And this is going to be huge going forward because Obamacare is going to implode. And had it imploded with somebody who was a real conservative as president and who either actually did repeal it or let it be and said, "Okay, you don't want to repeal it. I'm telling you, here's what's going to happen. And then when that happens, guess what? Guess who would pay a political price? Democrats and liberals. That's not what's going to happen here. It's going to be the opposite, all because of Trump and his ego. Trump, with the approval of the vast majority of conservatives, has defied the Constitution on a regular basis, specifically his routine violation of the Emoluments Clause and now his universal and brazen denial of congressional oversight. The precedents Trump has created for his own personal benefit and survival, specifically the phony national emergency on the border and the use of the position of attorney general as his own PR flack, will allow future Democrat presidents wide latitude in making conservatives extremely upset. But their cries will go unheard because they'll be massive hypocrites. Politically, Trump has not just lost the majority in the House of Representatives, but because of his extreme unpopularity here in California, has provided Democrats with a huge structural advantage there going forward, which may be impossible for Republicans to overcome. On the presidential side, Once Republican states like Virginia, Colorado, and Nevada are now likely gone forever, that's not all Trump's fault, but he cemented it, put the final nail in the coffin, and even Texas is soon moving into that column, meaning that eventually there's going to be a Democratic president that will be far worse than Hillary Clinton ever possibly could have been, especially with a Republican Congress keeping her in check. Trump has single-handedly made conservative stances on some major issues, most prominently illegal immigration, politically toxic with over half the country, all without ever even building his wall, having Mexico pay for it, or delivering on the deportation forces he promised during the campaign. That, to me, you know, he promised so much winning. That's the opposite of winning. When you get all the negative political toxicity for having a stance that's unpopular and perceived as racist, but you don't even actually do anything to try to fix the problem. That's the worst of both worlds. Thanks to Trump, younger people now equate conservatism with racism, science denial, and crony capitalism, and that's on a good day. That is a brand which will be extremely difficult to overcome, especially as demographics shift in the favor of liberals in the coming years. And finally, having continually lied and betrayed their own beliefs 
all to defend someone as loathsome as and as relatively unpopular as Trump, conservatives both in the media and in political office will have essentially zero credibility in the future with anyone but Trump's cult-like base. I love the poorly educated. And it seems a pretty good bet, at least to me, that many of those very same people will eventually turn into Democrats the moment that Trump is finally gone. And then what is the Republican Party and the conservative movement going to be left with? Nothing. Nothing. The backlash to this is going to be a complete and total disaster, whether it's five years, 10 years, 15 years. I don't know. But that's the reality, and that's why I wrote that column, which I ch- hope you'll check out via Mediaite. You can, again, find it at our uh, Twitter handle, at Individual One Pod. That'll do it for uh, this edition of the Individual One Podcast, episode number 30. As always, we finish, no betting, please, with our updated percentages on the chances of Trump actually not completing his first term in office. That'll be down now to 5% for various reasons, much of which I'd already discussed during this episode. And I'm going to nudge up, thanks to his increasing approval ratings, the chances of him being reelected to a flat 50%. So we're at 5% for not finishing the first term in office, 50% reelection. And that's with Joe Biden currently blowing the doors off the Democratic field, uh, which is pretty much the best chance to defeat Donald Trump in a general election. Uh, The next edition of the Individual One podcast will be this Sunday. We'll uh, get that out sometime early afternoon, Los Angeles, California time. Until then, please remember to subscribe, rate, review, and share this via social media. And do follow us on Twitter. Our Twitter handle is individual1pod. That's individual, the number one pod. My name is John Ziegler. Until next time, you're listening to the Global Story Network. 